the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I am so pleased to welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Rhonda McDaniel. Good morning, Madam Chairwoman. Good to see you. It's working. I'm glad it's working. I know. I'm a little underdressed today. I'm in my casual clothes. I'm working. You look fabulous. Good to see you. Uh, I want to begin (laughs) by thanking you and David Bossie and every member of the committee that made the selection for the third debate in Miami of the Salem Radio Network and NBC to co-moderate. But I really want to thank you for picking the Republican Jewish Coalition. It is a crucial and urgent time for the RJC's voice to be heard, because I think the anti-Semitic racism we see in the United States is astonishing. And I don't know what the RJC is going to ask. They're they're in charge of their questions like I'm in charge or Salem's moderators in charge of their questions. But I'm just so glad the RGC is there. Yeah, me too. It was a game day decision. I mean, we had a different partner scheduled and after everything that happened in Israel, I just got on the phone with that, that original partner and said, we need to shift and we need to go where the moment is and meet that moment. And I was just in Israel with the Republican Jewish coalition. I went to Israel and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and the UAE to celebrate the Abraham Accords. I was with them to open the embassy in Jerusalem. And, you know, what's upsetting to me, Hugh, is to see people say, gas the Jews, we hate the Jews, things that are we are seeing across the world right now, it is reminiscent of the Holocaust and, and that phrase, never again. And to see this happening in our world again, it's not just about a political conflict about land. It is hate. It is hate-filled. And I just hope everyone knows the Republican Party does not stand for that. We don't let uh, any bit of that under our tent, like you see with the Democrats, with Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar, we condemn it wholeheartedly. We have chosen this partner to show our commitment to Israel, but also to Jewish Americans and Jewish people across the country that we believe any type of religious intolerance is is unacceptable. Uh, uh, Ron McDaniel, the, the racism that is involved in these anti-Semitic incidents. Yesterday in Minneapolis, I saw with my own eyes, so I know it happened. A motorcyclist at a demonstration that was, quote, pro-Palestinian, was flying the Hamas flag. That is like flying the Nazi swastika. There isn't any doubt about this. And I hope our Jewish listeners understand the Republican Party is 100 percent with Israel in this battle. Do 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 we have any fringe that isn't? No, we don't. And we condemn them. Right. So when we saw what happened in the horrific events of Charlottesville a few years ago, the RNC passed a resolution 100% condemning that those anti-Semitic chants and the anti-Semitic behavior. And everyone needs to understand the charter of Hamas is to wipe the state of Israel off the earth and kill all the Jews. 
when people ask for a two-state solution, say they came to us and said, you know, we need a two-state solution in the U.S., but the other party says, we don't believe you have the right to exist, and we believe all Jews should die, if that's what they're saying, how can you have peace through that? Israel has offered time and time again to do that, and it's Hamas who has been elected to lead the Palestinian people. That is their elected government. That is their charter to kill all Jews. And everybody needs to understand that. And they show that. You know, we talk about uh, what happened in, in Israel being 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. Yes, it is. But it's more because they intentionally tortured those families. They went and said, not only how do we kill them, how do we inflict as much torture and damage on mothers, on children, on grandmothers, Holocaust victims? It was intended to, to maximize pain and suffering. And that is their charter. And that is why we need to stand with Israel. And where is Hollywood? My goodness, where are these liberal universities? Where is the woke world? Imagine if people were saying, gas, any other group in this country, they'd be up in arms. And where are they? Where are the leaders in the Democrat Party? They are failing right now. And the Republican Party is standing up. And we're really glad to partner with the Republican Jewish Coalition to show our unity with Israel at this critical yep. time. I want to spend one more moment on the RJC. Your friend and mine, Norm Coleman. And I used to, I yes. campaigned for Norm through two elections. I love the guy. He's the chairman of the Republican Jewish Coalition. Every Jew in America should go and investigate the RJC. They, they just are they the should. most effective voice for Republicans who are also Jewish or Jews who are thinking about becoming Republican. I, I can't say enough good things about the RJC. You've been the chairwoman, very successful chairwoman for going on your, set, your, your fourth term. Have you worked with the RJC throughout it? I have, and I'm going to be there next week. The RJC has a huge event in Las Vegas with all the presidential candidates coming. I go every year, but I've been close with Norm and Matt Brooks uh, since, since the beginning of my time as chair. And by the way, Hugh, it changes your worldview when you actually go to Israel, when you're in Jerusalem, you're in East Jerusalem, when you're at the, you know, the hub of every major religion, Islam, Christianity and, and Judaism, and it changes your whole life. I mean, that's how I felt when I went, and I was able to go because of the RJC. The Republican Jewish Coalition does great work, uh, and they're great friends of ours, and the RNC's worked with them since since my chairmanship began. Well, it's unfortunate Matt Brooks doesn't know anything about football, but other than that, he's a fine, fine guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chairwoman McDaniel, well, I want to play come for at you. Yeah, Matt Brooks knows nothing about sports or football. <laughs> I agree. It's just a sad thing. Um, I want to talk to you about the debates thus far and the debate coming forward. Uh, are you happy with how they went? Because when Salem presented to the RNC and the subcommittee, I stressed, and I think Salem stressed, it's all. it should be about the 30 million Republican primary and caucus voters, yeah. not about the mainstream media. Are you happy with the first two? What is your expectation for number three? You know, I think what viewers need to understand as we go through this is, when we go with a partner like Fox News, they have editorial control. They're paying for the debate. The RNC is not funding these debates. We're not taking money for campaigns to pay for these debates. And I think we're giving these candidates a phenomenal stage. Look at that stage right there to present their viewpoint. But then it's up to the candidates to, to, to sing. I say we give them the stage. It's up to them whether they can sing. And I think they've, you know, it's the smallest debate stage we've seen, right? We have 15 still in the 2016 cycle. Now we're already down to seven. I think, you know, there's some takeaways that you and I have talked about. We should have opening statements and closing statements on the next one. And we're talking to the next partner about that. 
But, you know, Fox was a great partner. I think Salem's going to be a great partner. But mostly it's up to these candidates, and they're, they've got to find a way to break through, and we're giving them that opportunity. Now, when I talk to people about questions of debate, I, I try and illustrate the difference. John Carl's a friend of mine. I know John. I've worked with him at ABC. Yeah, yeah. He had, he had Tim Scott on yesterday, and he asked this, quote, question, cut number 26. You said that he has blood on his hands. I mean, with all due respect, that the blood is on the hands of Hamas. And to say that Joe Biden is complicit, which you also said, in, 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 in the greatest, deadliest attack on the Jewish people since the Holocaust. I mean, that, that, that's beyond the pale, isn't it? All right. Now, uh, Ron and McDaniel, is that a question or is that a statement? Oh, it's 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 like look at his outrage. He's like horrified. I mean, the bias is so evident. But I'll just say this, Hugh, we've, we're going to have to take on legacy media and we have to reach independent voters. So whatever they bring at you, push back. Be like, wow, your bias shows through, Jonathan. Really? Do you think six billion to Iran was a good idea? Do you think letting um, Iran have nuclear capability and getting back into that deal and working with the, the number one funder of terrorism with Hamas and giving Iran that money was a good idea? So, yes, blood is on Joe Biden's hands. Saying that, just push back. Um, I think sometimes we get too caught up in the question and we've got to remember our response will break through no matter what network we're on. And we can't win the presidency without reaching independent voters. They are 42 percent of this country right now. We have a great opportunity during this debate cycle to reach them. So, you know, push back, guys. Push back on these moderators, even if it's a Hugh Hewitt. Push back. <laughs> no, no matter who it is, if they ask an unfair no question. Uh, I remember Newt Gingrich yes. in 2012. Newt used to do this. Yeah, Newt Gingrich used to do this. He'd say, the premise of your question is flawed. Let me restate it. And that's what we've got to be able to do. And your bias is coming through. Because they are biased. I mean, and I think when you point that out, the audience will go, what? You're right. So that's I I will play Tim Scott's answer later on my grand old pod. But I want people to know that is the right way to do it. If it's framed the wrong way, if a if it's a statement instead of a question, we're not playing Jeopardy here. We're supposed to be asking questions that are fair and that that are pointed, but are fair. Now, Chairwoman, I want to switch gears while we have two minutes left. Virginia votes and Kentucky votes soon. And and you've done a great job putting volunteers in the field and staff in the field on presidential and federal elections. You're barred from actually helping the Virginia State Party. What do you think of of the Yunkin and and, uh, Winsome Sears and Mayorkas effort to get everybody to vote early in Virginia? Yeah, I mean, we, we we can help in state elections, but I can't legally raise state dollars. So in ah. Virginia, when a candidate can raise unlimited dollars and the state party can raise unlimited dollars, they just don't need the RNC. So um, I think Glenn Youngkin's done a great job. I will say this, Hugh, and warning flags for every candidate looking at 2024. If you look at the Democrat ads in Kentucky and Virginia, what are they running on? They're running on one thing. What do you think it is, Hugh? Abortion. Abortion. Every single ad is abortion. It is, you should see the ads in Kentucky right now, a red, red state, right? This is a state Trump won. This is a state Republicans win. Everybody needs to know the playbook of the Democrats is to go in and say that Republicans won't give life-saving care for miscarriages or topic pregnancies, and they are going to demonize us. And my point to every candidate and every committee is, if you do not define yourself on this issue, the Democrats will do it for you. 
it's harder to dig yourself out of a hole than to define yourself up front. So spend money, talk about where you stand, uh, make it clear that the Democrats are extreme. They want due date abortions. They want gender selection abortions. They're with China and North Korea. And, and then point out the differences. And then you can pivot to crime, the economy, fentanyl, all the other things voters care about. But I will say Democrats are doing this in Virginia and Kentucky, and it is all over TV. And our candidates right now are not talking about abortion. They're talking about crime or other issues. And, well, you know, every Republican I know believes one of two things. Either the decision ought to be left up to the state to reflect state values, or there ought to be a federal standard that is either 12 or 15 weeks. Nobody believes anything but that. I mean, I, I think it's been asked and answered on the presidential stage a lot. What do you think? Well, I think, one, we can't say the word ban. Don't let them use that word. That's their language, right? MAGA extremist ban, that's what they're going to say. We need to talk about the fact that the vast majority of Americans believe in common sense, humane limitations when a baby feels pain. And say to the Democrats, and most Republicans have said, I'm willing to go there. I may be personally more pro-life than this, but I believe that when a baby feels pain, that should be a, a, a place we don't go further than. And that's 15 weeks. That's where Europe is. And when you put the Democrats on the defense, watch, they won't come there. They're going to stay with their due date abortion and their extreme radical ideas on this issue. Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel of the GOP, thank you for joining me early on this Monday morning. Much appreciated. I'm so glad the RJC is going to have you down at their gathering and that you selected them as a partner for the Salem NBC debate. Thank you so much, Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. I'll be right back, America. I'm this is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from free thinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Earlier this morning on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, I pointed out that Representative Mike Waltz, Green Beret, from Florida endorsed Brian Donalds for the Speaker of the House. And I said, this is a big deal. Where are the veterans of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq in the speakership election? Every House member has a vote, but some members have the seriousness that comes from on-the-ground experience in battle theaters. I'd like to know where they are. One of those joins me, Derek Van Orden, congressman from Wisconsin. He is, of course, a SEAL, and he is, of course, not in the United States right now. He's where I, I'm not surprised to find him in Israel. Good morning, Congressman. Good to have you on. Uh, good morning, Hugh. It's nice to be here. Now, you'll be there all week, so you're counting on the speakership not getting to an answer before the end of the week. I really don't think so, unfortunately. Um, we've got nine candidates now, all of which would be outstanding speakers. I know all of the, uh, the folks personally, I've known them, what, for some of them for nine months since I got into Congress, but others I've known for several years. And uh, any of those folks will make a fine speaker. 
Now, Congressman, do you agree with me that the vets, the combat vets are more serious about this stuff than, say, the knucklehead caucus of uh, Matt Gates and Nancy Mason, the rest of the silly people? Well, you know, Jack Bergman, General Jack Bergman is a combat veteran. Uh, he's a veteran of the Vietnam War. And he's the there you go. Ranking, uh, he's the highest, highest ranking uh, military officer ever to be elected to Congress. He's a very serious person. Uh, none of the folks that have served in Afghanistan and Iraq are in the speaker's race. And I think that's okay, too. I mean, to me personally, I don't think it should be a prerequisite to serve in the military, to serve in Congress. But I'll tell you what, um, it certainly gives us a different worldview. And when we get together as veterans, you are correct. We take things very seriously because we understand uh, from direct personal experience the ramifications of poor policymaking. And we do need a bit more of that in Congress. You know, I do note and that I have not seen a single veteran of the long war say anything stupid. Like, look, Matt Gates doesn't deserve the term stupid. That's unfair to stupid people. But I, I just want to talk with you about why you're in Israel. Because, again, you're serious. What took you to Israel? Well, Jews are being slaughtered at a level that they haven't since the Holocaust. And we've got to remember that the time is of the essence here. Uh, yesterday, I went to some of the places in the South, Barry and these other um, kibbutzins that you've been seeing in the news. Uh, the slaughter of the, the uh, I call them children because our youngest child is 25 at that rave. We went into the kibbutz, into the homes, talked to the, the people that have been witnessing this directly. I spoke to the man that recovered personally the beheaded in- infants. I spoke to the man who personally recovered Women that were handcuffed knew that had been uh, raped repeatedly and then murdered. Um, I spoke to a grandfather, a 70-year-old grandfather yesterday, who ran to the the, uh, sound of the guns. He only had a pistol on him. He shot a terrorist, took the rifle, and then they defended that kibbutzim and his grandchildren for 16 hours, him and one other person. I spoke to another man who two of his sons who were not in the army heard the gunfight they took their pistols and assaulted the terrorists to try to defend them, uh, the kibbutzim. Both of them were killed, and one of them was so badly burnt that they had to use the DNA of his identical twin to identify the body. So what's taking place here now is so incredibly horrific. And if you think proportionality, uh, if what took place in the amount of casualties that Israel has sustained. If that happened in the United States because of the difference in our population, that would have been 50,000 Americans killed and not uh, by the planes crashing, which is, which is absolutely horrible. But think about people intentionally targeting, breaking into homes, raping, murdering, stabbing babies repeatedly and again and again and again and again. I sat with a guy yesterday both of his parents were Holocaust survivors and were 30 meters away from his house where his mother and father were slaughtered like animals. And, you know, uh, Congressman, there's a story this morning in the Telegraph uh, that the butchers were high on Captagon, which is, of course, at the center of the new novel Code Red. And Captagon is manufactured primarily in Syria. It's the poor man's cocaine. They were, these butchers were high as a kite and just killing everything that moved. Uh, but still the savagery assaults the senses, and the world wants to turn the page, and I'm glad you're not letting them turn the page, because they can't turn the page from what these savages did, and savage is the only word I can come up with. The other word is beast. 
that you could think of. And uh, listen, we cannot allow the Holocaust to happen again. There's people that deny the Holocaust took place, and there's people that are denying that this took place or that they're trying to equivocate it. And unfortunately, many of them are in the Democrat Party in the House of Representatives right now as we speak, which is shameful. I just came from the Holocaust Museum here, um, here in Jerusalem. I wanted to go there to see that so that, again, I could reinforce the historical perspective of what's taking place here. And the most powerful part of that um, memorial museum is the children's museum. You walk into this chamber where there are thousands and thousands of candles that are reflecting on hundreds and hundreds of mirrors. And so you see into the, the distance uh, because of the illusion that's created there. And it's an endless series of these points of light. And they read the names of the identified children that were slaughtered in the Holocaust repeatedly. It's the most powerful uh, memorial I think I've ever been into in my life. And we gotta remember, there's still 30 children. There's still 30 children that these savages abducted and took into to Gaza right now. Now, there's Congressman, I want- Israelis that are still right now. Go ahead. And, and there are 20 Americans. I don't even know the names of the Americans. Right. Why do we not know the names of the Americans? I, I pray for all 250 hostages, but ought we not to know the names of the Americans at least? I would hope so, but you let's let's be very very clear and brutally honest. The Biden administration set a precedence by abandoning thousands of American citizens and our allies to terrorists in Afghanistan with virtually no follow through. Private citizens wound up going over to Afghanistan to try to rescue American citizens. I flew over and wound up in uh, the Middle East trying to rescue American citizens. I helped process them, processing, excuse me, I helped to process those that were pulled out. But so the Biden administration set this precedent. If you were Hamas and you saw that, you would say, well, you know, is the United States going to actually put their best foot forward to get these people back? Because they didn't in Afghanistan. That emboldened Putin. I mean, the, to invade, uh, to invade, uh, excuse me, Ukraine, Ukraine, because he yep. saw if, if the Biden administration is going to abandon American citizens, what are they going to do about Ukraine? So now, now Congressman, I had, take, yeah, go ahead. I had former President Trump's last national security advisor on Friday, Ambassador Robert O'Brien. Very good, very effective, yep. and a hostage negotiator. He said bluntly, Iran invaded Israel on 10-7. Iran invaded Israel. They used puppets. They used the Hamas. They used Hezbollah. They used the Houthis. But it's Iran. Do you agree with his assessment? Yes. Yes. Iran invaded. Uh, they're responsible for the invasion of, of Israel right now. Hamas is just an extension, uh, as is Islamic Jihad, as is ISIS, quite frankly, as are Al-Shabaab. All these organizations are being uh, funded by and supported by Iran. That's so irrefutable. Here is what is maddening here. The United States, starting under President Obama and now following up with President Biden, have given at one point hundreds of billions or hundreds of millions, now billions of dollars to Iran. And to think for a moment that giving a hundred million dollars to Hamas is appropriate is, is just unfathomable. And let me put this into a, a way that people can understand this. When we were involved in World War II, at no time do I think the British cabinet said, we need to make sure that we get humanitarian aid to the German people. 
that conversation didn't take place. It simply didn't. I had a, a reporter from the BBC. I talked to him this morning, and he was trying to equivocate what's taking place in Gaza. And I explained to him that everything that takes place in Gaza now, everything that takes place in Israel now, is Hamas's fault and it's Iran's fault. And he looked at me with that, you know, British BBC kind of smug look in his face. And I said, "Do you think that Winston Churchill should be held accountable?" for all of the casualties that were sustained by the Germans bombing London during the Blitz. Because that's what took place here. Germany started World War II. Hamas started this war. So to blame Israel for what's taking place in Gaza right now and in and Israel itself is just a foolish statement. It doesn't make any sense historically. It makes no sense practically. It makes no sense logically. And it's a way to obfuscate. It's a way for people to exercise subtle anti-Semitism. And I simply will not stand for that. Good for you, Congressman. And I I tell people proportionality does not mean what reporters think it means. Proportionality is one must take into account the damage and loss of civilian life as one measures military objectives. And the military objectives can overweigh a lot of civilian casualties, but you got to at least measure the impact. And Israel always does that. I want to ask you about the Northern Front, Congressman, because Hezbollah has 150,000 missiles. Is Israel justified, in your view, at preemptively striking those missiles? Well, that's a very, that's a very good question, Hugh. And uh, right now, I'm not prepared to answer that. Um, I would say, initially, absolutely. If those missiles are pointed at uh, Israel, which they are, and they can identify them and destroy them, that, that would be a good thing. The, the problem is, if you're trying to open up a two-front war, which Israel should be able to handle, um, if they're prepared for that, then the answer is yes. If they're not prepared to fight a two-front war, then the answer is no. That's why. And then my last question, question, you're a SEAL. I assume there are hostage rescues in your your background. How difficult will this mission be to get victory in Hamas, destroy Hamas, Hamas, victory in Gaza, and rescues uh, hostages at the same time? It seems to me almost impossible. I was going to use the term nearly impossible, Hugh, and that's it's tragic. I, I want to be real clear with everybody because I'm sure the left-wing press will get a hold of this stuff. Um, I had multiple combat tours on the ground, and war is horrible and it's horrific, and I wish we didn't have it, but we do. And the Jewish people have been um, the Jewish people have been attacked for time immemorial, and I do believe now is a time for a reckoning because for too long. Iran, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, all these other organizations have been uh, supported, unfortunately, by the United States, you know, by our tax dollars. And I got to go back to the state of Wisconsin and explain to a dairy farmer that's milking three times a day why his tax dollars are paying to attack Israel. That's a very good way to conclude this. Congressman Van Orden, it is always great to talk to you. I love the seriousness. I wish we had that seriousness in the speakership. They find someone, maybe it's General Burgum, maybe it's uh, anybody else who's actually knows what they're talking about when they talk about war. Thank you, Congressman Van Orden from Wisconsin. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches, three pastors facing the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart, took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. 
The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. This fascinating story uncovers those who've sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they truly believe in. Rediscover why the church is essential and how we prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. It'll change your life. You need to see this movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church, streaming at SalemNow.com. This is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from Freethinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside of the Beltway. Good morning to you. It is Monday, October the 23rd, in the year of our Lord, 2023. It is a week of war, I'm afraid. I think it's going to get very big, very fast in the Middle East this week. I'm joined by Josh Kraschauer, Executive Editor, editor Editor-in-Chief of Jewish Insider. Good morning, Josh. I want to begin small and go large. I got a report this morning from a very trusted friend in California that in the Manhattan Beach Unified School District, a Jewish student was verbally assaulted uh, by a pro-Hamas kid saying revenge is sweet and other anti-Semitic things. And it was dismissed as not being rising to the level of a hate assault. So there was no action taken. I'm checking it out. Have you heard about this or other like incidents across the United States? Uh, I haven't heard of that specific instance, but there has been a a surge of of anti-Semitism since October 7th, Hugh, Uh, 1,300% rise in the two weeks uh, after October 7th in England. And you've seen, at the very least anecdotally, uh, a lot of uh, anti-Semitism in in California. Uh, Barry Weiss's uh, free press offices were uh, vandalized with anti-Semitic graffiti. Um, And there have been, there was a murder of a synagogue president, Hugh, in Detroit, which we don't know if it was what the motives are quite yet, but there's a lot of suspicion um, and, and a lot of investigation yet to come, but that, that unnerved many in the Jewish community. Security is, is, is very high. If you talk to any American, if you talk to any Jewish person around the world, uh, the, the anxiety over anti-Semitism, violence, you saw you know, tens of thousands of uh, pro-Hamas uh, protesters uh, marching into the streets of Chicago, Washington, D.C. over the weekend. So there, there's a lot of people on edge in the Jewish community, and the data shows that anti-Semitism was already on the rise even before October 7th, and all the data we've seen in the last two weeks show that uh, around the world, certainly, uh, anti-Semitism is up even after the worst atrocity uh, since the Holocaust in any in any given moment. Um, so Josh, it's a very I've... unnerving time, and that is collective. I have seen with my own eyes. I don't know about the Manhattan Beach report yet. I recommend it to you for investigation because it 
if they did, in fact, let the kid go who, who said revenge is sweet and attack the Jewish students, then we need the resignation of the superintendent and the board in Manhattan Beach. But I don't know yet. I have seen with my own eyes the video yesterday in Minneapolis of a motorcyclist waving the Hamas banner, not a pro-Palestinian flag, the Hamas banner. That's protected by the First Amendment. They're allowed to do it. But have you seen any pro-Hamas demonstrations in the United States? Well, there, there, as I've mentioned, Hugh, there have been pro-Palestinian demonstrations with many uh, people chanting pro-Hamas slogans or, or carrying uh, identification that affiliates them with, with Hamas. And, you know, you had hundreds of over 100,000 in London over the weekend. Um, you know, it was very, you know, the type of rhetoric you would hear at the, these, these rallies are very unnerving. Europe, especially, I think that that's the real concern. Um, they, they've already had to have their synagogues and schools protected by ample security in, in, in Europe, but there's worries in the United States. That given some of the anecdotes, Hugh, that you were just talking about, um, look, and also the the, the the wake up call, I think, was that in the immediate aftermath of the October seventh uh, slaughter, uh, the the barbaric terrorism taking place in Israel. Many school districts, especially in areas with large Jewish populations, Montgomery County, Maryland, Fairfax County, Virginia, in my, my neck of the woods, uh, they didn't have anything to say. They, they say uh, they get put out a statement un, under everything under the sun, any news story that, that could you know psychologically hurt, hurt someone. And in the wake of 1,400 uh, Israelis and Americans included in among them being slaughtered, they had very little to say and they were equivocating. In many of these instances, so it's not just colleges, Hugh. It's it's a lot of these K to twelve campuses where the leadership has been totally uh, absent in terms of showing leadership and show, saying that they're going to protect Jewish students. They're going to fight against anti semitism that's been bubbling up in many of these same same school districts. Josh, I can't imagine what it's like running Jewish Insider right now. Has, this is you've been in the job about a year, I guess. I don't know how long, but what is it like running Jewish Insider in a time when? This horrific massacre occurs. Israel's going to war. 360,000 reservists called up. I read this morning there, there isn't anyone in Israel who doesn't know someone has been taken hostage. Hang on, it's, that, it's that widespread of an impact on Israel. So what's it like running Jewish Insider right now? Well, that's a great question. It's, 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 we're, we're, ever since October 7th, we, we mobilized and we're basically on, on, on war, war footing. We've published special editions and we've been trying to kind of separate the noise you hear, in the, including in the mainstream uh, press, Hugh, I mean, some of the misinformation and, 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 you know, obviously the New York Times correction today about the their bad reporting on, on, on the bombing of, of the Hamas hospital or the Gazan hospital um, was one of, egregious example of that. But we try to separate the noise from the news. We have an amazing team of, of reporters, both here in the U.S., covering politics and, and policy. And we have a team uh, in Israel, Ruth uh, Eglash and Lachav Harkov, two of the best uh, uh, English language uh, reporters in Israel, um, along with Melissa Weiss, our, our, our executive editor, and and they just have been on top of, of everything. Um, and we try to we wrote today about what it's like to live in Tel Aviv, the city, you know, the city uh, far away from the southern Israel front lines, but um, it's empty. I mean, the, the, it's, it's like being in London during the Blitz, where you have rockets overhead. Stores are closed most of the time. It's like living really in 1940, you know, 19, early 1940s London uh, in a way. And, and then we kind of try to describe what it's like, the psyche of the Israeli people after suffering a massacre. That would be the equivalent of, you know, almost 40,000. If you, if you compare the population of the number of people killed, uh, Hugh, in Israel to the U.S., it would be like, you know, 40,000 people dying on 9-11. Uh, it's, 
that, that, that percentage of the population. So it's a psychic wound to the Israeli people and, and it's shattered uh, Israeli society. And now the big question is they, they need to have some deterrent effect. They need to be able to show uh, that they can take out Hamas and, and, and really deter anything like that from ever happening again. That's, that's the whole reason for the Jewish state. And that's what's mobilizing so many people uh, Israelis and people who are across the world who um, served in the Israeli Defense Forces coming back to Israel to, to fight for their country. Josh Kroshauer, I follow you on Twitter. I follow uh, many, many Israeli reporters. I read the Times of Israel and Jerusalem Post. I'm trying to stay up to speed with what's actually going on as opposed to propaganda and bad reporting. I didn't know the New York Times put out a correction. It's only seven days too late. You know, too bad. But I, I, I just want to get the news. So I go to you and I go to trusted sources. Now, one of the stories I read earlier is that the prime minister was afraid to meet with troops because they were mad at him. I, you know, they're so it's, uh, Israel's like the United States, deeply divided domestically. But I didn't believe that. And then yesterday he was out with the troops talking and he said specifically, if Hezbollah attacks Israel, they will long for the days of the second second Lebanon war. I understood that. But do you think most Americans understood what Bibi was saying? And how do you understand that if Hezbollah attacks Israel, they will long for the days of the second Lebanon war? What does that mean to the Americans who don't have any clue? Well, look, that that's a sign of, I mean, Netanyahu trying to project deterrence and, and threaten, make sure Iran, you know, doesn't, I mean, they're, they're already like, you know, throw causing uh, instability in the north, but they're trying, both the U.S. and and, and the, that rhetoric by Netanyahu uh, is designed to deter Iran from opening up a northern front, uh, which could be very, very, I think, problematic, uh, having to deal with a two-front war. Um, but but look, Israel is, you, you now have a unity government. Uh, Benny Gantz, the, one of the opposition leaders, and uh, the defense uh, minister, Gallant, uh, they're, they're part of a war cabinet. It takes two two votes to to get uh, you know policy implemented now, it's not not just Bibi's call, um, and that's what I think is is, is really directing uh, a lot of the you know there's a lot of questions about whether you know when 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 the ground invasion is going to begin. There's obviously a lot of military action taking place in Gaza, but the question is when are when are troops going to be in Gaza? Um, there's a lot of discussion. We ran a story Hugh last week about whether Biden's uh, trip to Israel and his engagement and public support for Israel is 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 a, a hug or a bear hug. Um, in other words, it looks like the Americans are trying to at least delay or constrain perhaps the scope of, of the Israeli uh, military operation, partly maybe because of the hostages and trying to free more hostages, partly because I think the U.S. wants to bolster its military personnel in the region. But there there is a surprise that this is, you know, the ground invasion has not yet taken place. And uh, there's a lot of anxiety in Israel and, you know, everywhere uh, in terms of waiting to see what happens next. And a, and a lot of bad reporting. I think the prime minister is just fine with the troops. Let me ask you a final question, Josh. We do not have the names of the American hostages. Why don't we know their names and know their stories? Yeah, I mean, there's been some some reporting in the in the press. Uh, we obviously know the Ranan family in Illinois. They, the, those were the two only two hostages that were released. Um, look, I don't know about the Americans. I mean, there's right now there's still a question of um, there's still we ran, ran a story today in Jewish Insider. They're still identifying the dead. It's been the, the, the sheer scale of the brutality has meant it's taken a long time to even figure out who's dead and who may be being held in, in Gaza as hostages. So um, I think there's a little bit that I think that accounts for some of the the vagueness in, in the American statements. We do know about 10 Americans think about 10 Americans are being held hostage in, in Gaza. 
Josh Crosshauer, good to stay in touch with you. Thank you for being such a great voice of sanity and reason. Jewish Insider, at J underscore Insider. On Twitter, Josh is at Josh Crosshauer on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. This is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election story, Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from free thinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Welcome back, America. Lord Andrew Roberts, the Baron of Belgravia, joins me. I'm going to have to get used to that, Lord Roberts, because I've always just called you Andrew before. Now I got to call you Lord Roberts. And so it's great to have you back. Welcome. Good to have you. <laughs> no, please keep calling me Andrew here. <laughs> well, I just I think the Baron of Belgravia is just the greatest title ever. And I, I've got to go write 20 great books so that I can become a Baron someday. Lord Roberts, Andrew. Let's go to this very well-timed, sadly very well-timed book. Conflict could not actually be more timely, arriving as it does as war engulfs Israel on the south, maybe the north, and maybe wider. I talked to General Petraeus last week about that. I just wonder if you have any thoughts or if you had a chance to see my conversation with him, because I'm going to go back to the beginning of the book with you. But what do you think about conflict's applicability to what the situation Israel finds itself in today? It's all too applicable, unfortunately. You know, human nature hasn't changed for 2,000 years, let alone uh, over the last week. Um, many of the things that we saw in that Hamas attack really were so reminiscent of, um, of the Second World War and also, obviously, you know, medieval conflicts. Um, but it's what is very difficult to find a precedent for is the difficulty of the uh, problems facing Israel at the moment, and uh, especially, obviously, its high command. I did see your interview, and um, I thought that David was absolutely right in concentrating on strategic leadership, the importance of strategic leadership, because that's something that is one of the major themes and, and threads of this book. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about specifically is the Algerian civil war. Because I heard a podcast by Dan Senor with a very, very good Israeli journalist on how some um, Palestinian extremists, the Hamas terrorists, for example, are not looking for a two-state solution. They think of the Israelis as the Algerians thought of the French, occupiers, and they want to drive them out. First, tell us about the Algerian civil war, which you cover in the book, and how it might be applicable to today. I don't think it is that applicable uh, to today, frankly, because um, obviously the Israelis are not occupiers. They, uh, they've been there for 3,500 years in the Holy Land. Um, but uh, that doesn't alter the fact that Hamas obviously sees everything from a very, uh, frankly, uh, perverted, uh, historically perverted um, prism. And uh, what is perhaps um, applicable is the uh, 
horrific use of torture that was used on um, uh, in the Algerian civil war. Although, of course, it was used by the French against the Algerians, uh, whereas in, with Hamas, it's used by Hamas against the Israelis. Uh, but it does concentrate. That civil war was very important with regard to um, torture because it went very much against the soul of the of the French. You know, the 1789 Declaration of Human Rights was all about human rights, and uh, and so there is, in that sense, a uh, applicability. Well, as conflict makes clear, if you go that way, you're lost. If you if you become a torturer, you have lost already before the war has begun. Not only does it not work, but it rightly turns the world against you. So I asked this about the present day coming out of conflict, the book, Andrew. Um, when you hear everyone talking about Israel has to use proportionate force, you studied all of Israel's war, the War of Independence, the, the Six-Day War, the Egyptian Suez War, the, the Yom Kippur War. Have they never not been completely committed to the laws of armed conflict, in your view? Yes, of course they have. Absolutely they have. Um, but there's a, another aspect to proportionality, which is that if you only respond with the exact same uh, power uh, that you have been attacked, <laughs> that's a recipe for future wars. Um, what is needed now is for Hamas to be completely extirpated as a military force. You're not going to extirpate it as a political force because it's outside, um, it's in Arab capitals around the world. But but you can destroy it as a uh, military force, although it's going to be fiendishly difficult to do that. And I don't think David Petraeus or I in any way underestimate that. Now, he did ask me to ask you. It's kind of fun communicating this way. What does he think of the Zelensky-Churchill comparison now after it's all done? Because it's very much in the minds. And what does Netanyahu have to do to get to that level of leadership right now? Oh, I'm I'm a um, true believer in uh, Zelensky as the modern day Churchill. I think he's Churchill with an iPhone. Um, he has all of those great uh, qualities of uh, of um, splendid communication skills, of a uh, great uh, relationship with all the people that he needs to get on well with. He speaks to the people directly in an amazingly powerful way, and he's a good strategist. When he thinks of all the battles so far, um, you know they have. They have been won by Ukraine. But the other thing that Churchill had was the capacity to get his people and the United States um, to commit to the war for years. And I'm afraid from the look of the, um, of the faltering of the latest Ukrainian counteroffensive, um, it, uh, it might well be years. And Churchill was extremely good at communicating, as I say, to the United States and others that they have to keep um, stumping up. I'm going to come back with Lord Andrew Roberts immediately after the break and continue talking to him. We'll put it on the podcast today. We'll play it in the week ahead. The book is Conflict by Andrew Roberts and David Petraeus. It's available at Amazon. I put out the tweet with the link to the Amazon. I actually paid for the Audible version myself, which I never, ever do with a book. But Conflict deserves it. And we'll talk more after the break about why that is. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, General Ishimo. And thanks to my new listeners in the Florida Keys. Now, 480 distribution outlets of the Hugh Hewitt Show. And now throughout the Florida Keys. I'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Lord Andrew Roberts is the author, along with David Petraeus, of the brand new book, Conflict. It is a study of all the conflicts, all the wars since the end of World War II. Andrew, I, I first want to ask about, you're a historian. You've always been used to looking backwards. 
you're working with a general who always had to look forward. How did this collaboration come about and how was it different from any of the other books that you've written? It was it was totally different, Hugh, from all the other books I've written, because all the other books I've written about dead people and they, you know, who can't sue you. Um, so uh, so that was different. There's also a um, uh, it was after the Russian invasion. I phoned up David, uh, who I'd known for years and said, look, what we need is a book that puts this war in its military history context. There are going to be loads of wars about its geo- books about its geopolitical and political context. We want to look at the military history. And he absolutely jumped at the idea. So we got onto the publishers, HarperCollins, and they said, how are you going to divvy up the chapters? And I said, well, uh, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded and uh, ah! I'll do everything else. <laughs> and that's, uh, he also did the Vietnam uh, chapter as well, which obviously is a very important chapter. So, um, so then we got down to it. And once we'd written each of our own chapters, uh, we sent them backwards and forwards and exchanged literally thousands of emails. It was one of the most intellectually stimulating experiences of uh, any book that I've written. You know, I asked him last week, I'm going to ask you, Jug, Douglas, I spent the summer getting ready for conflict by reading biographies of Nimitz, Eisenhower, MacArthur, and then Rickover. And uh, Rickover was not a big deal in the World War II. He, he shaped the modern nuclear Navy. But those three, Ike, Truman, uh, I, I mean, Ike, uh, Nimitz, and MacArthur, very different people. David suggested, General Petraeus suggested, we're never going to have a general like that again. Celebrity generals just don't work well in the modern age. Do you agree or disagree with him? Well, um, you know, funny enough, uh, so long as you don't tell him, I think that David is a bit of a celebrity general himself. Oh, yes, he is. I've been on this book uh, tour uh, with him. We're going to six states uh, here in America. And everywhere we go, there are crowds who will line up, you know, around the block virtually in order to have their photos taken with him, shake his hand, buy the book, get it signed, that kind of thing. I, I tell you this, there's, there are a few, I mean, it's like being with a rock star <laughs> rather than with a soldier, frankly. What do you think they're coming out for? Why do you, I, I have a theory about that. What do you think they're coming out for? I think it's because of the surge, because of the extraordinary success he had during the surge in Iraq. You know, uh, I think successful generals are um, uh, sadly few and far between in, um, in uh, the West post-1945 for reasons that we give in this uh, book. There are, you know, several real game changers uh, um, you know, Matthew Ridgway actually is uh, somebody who you ought to read the next book about after the MacArthur one. Um, but, um, but you know, when you get somebody who is an absolute uh, sort of rainmaker in a, uh, in a conflict in the way that David was, in such an important uh, conflict, then I can see why people, you know, want to sort of touch the hem of his, <laughs> of his cloak, as it were. Yeah, I think there are three Ts, courage, competence and communication. If a general shows courage by leading from the front and dug out Doug was not fair about MacArthur, they all went in harm's way. Competence. They know what they're doing. They have strategic vision and then they can communicate. Then you get a celebrity general and that's a good thing or a celebrity admiral. They're very different personalities, right? You probably reviewed the history of, of a, a hundred generals, but finding those three things is very rare. Well, especially if they've got intellect um, of the kind of level that David has. He did his PhD uh, in military history at Princeton, you know, and that was, for me, that was a really useful thing because, of course, it did mean that uh, when I was sending chapters backwards and forwards to him, I knew that there was going to be a level, a high level of intellectual rigour that uh, that is what you need for a book, obviously. Um, but uh, I, it's interesting you mentioning MacArthur, you know, um, he, he was so great on so many levels 
Uh, but then in, in Korea, he really did get the big idea wrong uh, with regard to going up to the Yalu River and not expecting the Chinese to come over and, you know, threatening the use of the nuclear bomb and stuff. Uh, Truman was right to, uh, to sack him, in my opinion. Intelligence failures dot the, the book Conflict, which Roberts and, and Petraeus have put forward. And I talked a lot about that with General last week. I want to ask you about that. The Israeli intelligence failure, which is also a failure of the five eyes, including the United States and the United Kingdom, is massive. I don't know that we've ever had. I know that 9-11 was an intelligence failure, but we weren't on guard for that the way the Israelis and the five eyes are supposed to be on guard for intelligence uh, clues. What do you think happened? I think it was pretty much the same as the uh, intelligence failure before Pearl Harbor. You know, they didn't make mistakes. They handed orders um, uh, either verbally or uh, written. They weren't uh, vouchsafed over the uh, communication systems that the Israelis could listen into. They actually upped their game, Hamas upped their game massively. And, uh, and you know, we weren't ready for it. It's uh, surprise attacks <coughs> come up. An awful lot. Um, you know, this book is absolutely packed with uh, with surprise attacks. There's that great Paul Wolfowitz line that uh, surprise attacks happen so often in history that the surprising thing is we're still surprised by them. Um, and yet, what it does do, what it does do, is to um, is to sort of light a flame under the uh, under the you know, nation that is uh, uh, surprised, and uh, and that flame doesn't go out until there's proper full retribution. I think that's what's going to happen in this case. At least I hope it will. Andrew, um, the horrific nature of the attack on ten seven, it's it's savagery. There's a story in the Telegraph yesterday that Captagon was fueling the amphetamine, the neo amphetamine that the terrorists were using in Hamas. Have we seen? that kind of savagery since the Viet Cong terrorized the people of South Vietnam? I mean, institutionalized savagery as a tactic. Have we seen it elsewhere? Uh, the Russians have been appalling in Ukraine. Uh, David and I went to uh, Kiev and we also visited Butcher, where 455 innocent civilians were um, were shot and, uh, and tortured and executed. And... Um, that was uh, that was horrific, but uh, you know it's it, the, the difference is with quite a lot of these armies, not necessarily the Russian one, which has its own way of war, but most armies actually have officers that um, try to prevent this kind of uh, bestial behavior, but with Hamas it's an absolutely integral part of how the war um, uh, as they see it needs to be fought, so that is a completely different thing where the officers are actually pushing the men on to do even more. Uh, horrific and sort of uh, sadistic things. Now, I want to talk to you about a very unusual aspect of conflict. It's the first time I've really read about the Chinese Civil War. Now, I read Fahrenbach's This Kind of War. I know pretty much all the wars from 48 forward, but I don't know anything about 45 to 48 in China. I really don't. And then all of a sudden, I'm getting an education in conflict. What is relevant about the Chinese Civil War to today, Andrew Roberts? Strategic leadership is the thing. You know, they started off, the uh, Guomindang, the nationalist forces, the government of China, started off with um, all the major cities in its control, with an army four or five times larger than the communist army, um, with much better weaponry, not least because they'd taken them off the Japanese when the Japanese surrendered. And yet none of those things 
mattered because Chiang Kai-shek um, made endless mistakes and his lieutenants very often didn't actually uh, follow his orders anyhow. Um, and the corruption in the um, Guomintang forces was uh, was endemic. And there are all, any number of, um, of present day uh, lessons that can still be learned from that terrible, tragic conflict, which went on for three years and cost six million lives. Now, I found, I found that chapter amazing. I didn't know that uh, the General Ishmael couldn't control his warlords. I had no idea about any of that, and it really did educate to me why we have Mao today's successor in Xi. Uh, now I want to talk to you about Vietnam, and I do so with some hesitation because I spent 1978 to 1980 with Richard Nixon talking about Vietnam every day because we were writing the book The Real War, and he was beginning to write No More Vietnams, and so I know a lot of Vietnam stuff. I am curious as a historian, is it written out now? Uh, we got McMaster's study on Vietnam, or will we be writing about Vietnam forever, Andrew Roberts? I, I, well, the McMaster book was excellent, needless to say, it really was. Um, and it did point to uh, so many um, failures of, uh, of leadership. But um, no, I don't think that it's one of those wars that uh, people just stop writing about, like some of the smaller um, um, counterinsurgency wars. It's, it really is a, a key war in the history of the United States, not just because of the large number of people who, uh, Americans who serve there, but also because it does um, stop, it has a sort of signpost uh, for the future. And it's not really, I think, until the Gulf War um, in 1990 that the sort of shadows and echoes of Vietnam are um, put to bed in the Pentagon itself. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about that time with Nixon for me, the first book he gave me was William Blake's Disraeli. And it's interesting to me, Andrew Ferguson has found that annotated book and is going to write about it in his new book about Nixon. And I'm, I'm glad because that was the first book he recommended to me. But the other book I had to read for his book was that by Sir Robert Thompson about Malaysia. And I'll bet you there isn't one in a thousand people listening to this Andrew Roberts, that knows about the Malaysian counterinsurgency campaign. Why do you think it figured so large in Nixon's thinking? Well, uh, not just in Nixon's thinking. Also, of course, uh, David Petraeus used it for his 2006 uh, counterinsurgency manual, mentions it in that. Uh, it's because it was a hugely successful counterinsurgency campaign. It's the um, what happened between the uh, British Empire and the uh, Malay communists between 1952 and 1960. So Gerald Templer there invented the term hearts and minds. And the way in which he won the hearts and minds, one of the many ways, was to offer Malaysia its independence, which it got in 1957, bringing people over to want to uh, fight the insurgency because it was a way of actually offering the um, uh, native peoples the uh, um, of the country the um, a better life. And so uh, you can understand easily why Richard Nixon should be interested in it as a template for Vietnam. Now, I want to I wrap up our time. You've been very generous by talking about the two Bushes. They both had a war. Actually, W had two wars. George H.W. Bush fought the first Gulf War, and he called it off after 100 hours. Did he make a strategic mistake or did Colin Powell advise him wrongly to stop? Because it seems like Joe Biden's announcement that we'll be gone out of Afghanistan by 9-11, then he backed it up when he realized that was bad PR to the end of August. 
the arbitrariness of hours and days and dates strikes me as a terrible thing, Andrew Roberts, and that they maybe ought to have gone to Baghdad and taken Saddam out. What do you think about that? I certainly do think that there would have been much the best um, thing in 1990. Uh, but um, there was the highway of death, you'll remember, of that large number of, um, of Iraqi soldiers killed in, uh, by American air power in a, uh, on a highway, which seemed to um, rattle the um, American high commander, or at least the White House. And, uh, and also, of course, George H.W. Bush didn't want to break up the coalition, very wide coalition of Arab um, partners as well by going on to Baghdad. But what a lot of trouble he'd have saved if, uh, if he had. Now, W, by contrast, starts the war in Afghanistan as a result of the attack on 9-11, but he chooses to go to war in Iraq. And in retrospect, I don't know how many people think that was a wise decision, but it was certainly based on flawed intelligence. But it was intelligence that was widely shared and believed by everybody uh, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, by everybody believed the intelligence. When you've got that level of intelligence failure, Andrew, is there any way to avoid a catastrophic result as we had in Iraq? Um, no, you've got to get the intelligence right. Of course you do. But there are lots of examples, including in this book, um, of the moments when intelligence actually is got right and therefore very good things uh, happen as a result. The uh, classic example, I think, being the uh, way in which the CIA and MI6 um, made it quite clear to the world that their intelligence meant that um, Putin was indeed going to invade Ukraine because at the time, of course, you remember the Russians were claiming that there was no plans to invade Ukraine at all. This was just manoeuvres on the Ukrainian border in Belarus and elsewhere and, uh, and that no way were they going to attack. And, so, and yet um, the, uh, the security agencies of the West uh, discovered that they were and said so and said so in good time. And uh, so, you know, there are moments when uh, when spies really do help. <laughs> Final two questions, Andrew Roberts. Um, looking ahead to the war that's brewing in the Middle East, will Israel ever be secure so long as the Iranian regime that is in place remains in place? And if the question is no, does Israel eventually have to deal with the strategic threat to Israel, which is Iran? Um, well, in a sense, of course, it is uh, in for, for years been dealing with uh, certain Iranians, including their their um, nuclear scientists. But no, overall, I, of course, you're right. However, I don't think that the Mullah's um, regime will necessarily stay in place. You know, an awful lot of Iranians. Um, do believe in democracy and human rights and women's rights and so on. And they have come uh, fairly close to uh, uh, to toppling that regime. Um, of course, uh, never close enough, very sadly. But, um, but the other thing, of course, is that um, Israel will never be safe when Hamas still has a military capacity uh, and when Hezbollah still has 150,000 rockets on its northern borders. So um, there are and also problems within Israel with the, uh, uh, with the Palestinian Arabs and also in the West Bank. So, you know, it is impossible and not a completely impossible situation, but whatever happens in the end in Gaza, you must not have an educational system there that teaches eight-year-old Palestinian children, that it's a good thing to kill Jews. You know, that it, it will be a generational conflict uh, that will see you and me out if that is not uh, dealt with. 
Final question. I'm always lobbying Lord Roberts to get to his Israeli biography. What's next for Andrew Roberts? <laughs> um, it is. Uh, it's going to be a bio, It's going to be a book. I, I, well, listen. We're about to <laughs> to start uh, negotiating and and maybe signing com, um, uh, contracts and things like that. So do you mind if I ask? answer that question when I come on your show next to you. I, I don't mind if you punt, but I just wanted to make sure that I lobbied you for Disraeli, just so that we get that Blake is, Lord Blake is wonderful, I but I would I would love I to have Lord it's, it's, I'd like the, it's in, the Baron of Belgravia version to come in. One day, one day, I promise. Andrew Roberts, thank you. You're generous with your time. Always a pleasure. Congratulations on Conflict. It's a fabulous book and so timely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.